Hey there, horny listeners. We talk a lot about safety on this podcast, and that includes the importance of safe toys that are actually designed for sexual pleasure. Bunny Shop's carefully curated products are body safe and prioritize quality, aesthetics, and safety. Bunny Shop takes a boutique approach to shopping for adult toys, with a wide range from affordable gems to unique luxury items for all experience levels. What I like most about Bunny Shop is the approachability. They've created such a welcoming space, and none of it's dark, intimidating, or feels like it's gatekeeping. And if you like pink, they've got you covered. Bunny Shop also donates a percentage of all sales to a non-profit of your choice. Plus, they ship quickly and discreetly. Let go of your shyness and embrace your self-love journey with confidence. Save 20% off your order today when you use my code BIGTOP. Visit bunnyshop.com, that's B-U-N-N-Y-S-H-O-P-P-E.com. Spelt with two P's and an E at the end. Don't be shy, let your freak flag fly. Hi, and welcome to The Big Top. I'm your host, Barney, and today I want to do something a little bit different. It's just me today, and since I've started this podcast, I've been thinking heavily about my mental health and the existential dread I am so often faced with whenever I think about it. Learning to be vulnerable is a big part of why I felt ready to make this podcast, and that desire extends far beyond kink. I know that many people, especially in the kink community, whether they listen to this podcast or not, suffer with so many of the same thoughts and feelings and questions that have for so long haunted me. If I'm not nearly as alone as I thought I was with my kinks, then it stands to reason that neither am I alone in this. Thinking that I was the strangest individual to walk upon planet Earth was a feeling that defined my early existence, even until recently. It even occasionally rears itself back like a horse, resurfacing momentarily to stop me in my tracks. Knowing that the way I think can't be as unique as my anxiety would have me believe doesn't do much to alleviate the narrative of alienation I've written around myself. If, like me, you've suffered with suicidal ideation, you'll know that there is sometimes no greater fear than that of what we might do or who we might become when pushed. But just as nothing lasts forever, no feeling is final. It's important to wait out the bad feelings because they won't last even if they come back again, and they will, and we wait again. Depression is not measured so much by how bad we feel as it is by how little we feel. Because of this, it's impressively common, silently slipping into the depths of our psyches and setting a self-perpetuating trap for our minds. It is widely thought that most people, if not everyone, will experience a period of depression over the course of their lives, whether we realize it or not because it is such a subtle and silent force, embedded so deeply within our thought process that it's incredibly easy to miss. Depression is a ghost, hidden just out of sight. It is in the corner of our eyes, in the shadow of a reflection, a breath on the back of our necks that stands always out of view. We don't notice it, even when we feel its presence, knowing that something is wrong, but not what. Oftentimes it takes a far more objective look at our behaviours to even realise we are in a depression, reacting against a shadowy figure playing a private game of chess with us. To stare at the phone, unable to muster the strength to reach out and take it. To call for help, to know who to ask, to know how, 
to assume you're so burdensome that no one would want to see you, that they probably don't even like you, until you perpetuate that very cycle of loneliness by creating it in the first place. I struggle a lot with depression and anxiety, especially social anxiety. My crutches are alcohol and humour, because I am most afraid of someone seeing how nervous I really am. I learnt how to appear confident, and so most people don't realise how shy I am in groups or new social situations. I hide my anxiety well, but it's still there, and I try to be less embarrassed about it. I try to be more open about it, more honest with it. I try to acknowledge the gnawing of its jaws against my heart so that people can see its teeth, so that I can look at it and say, thank you, but you're not helping me right now. We are all somewhere between the person that we are and the person that we want to be. We are products of our upbringing, and so it is much easier to walk the already cleared paths in the forests of our minds than it is to clear new ones. It's why old habits die hard, why change takes patience, and why we sometimes can't help ourselves reacting in unhealthy ways, even when we recognize them for what they are. Taking the steps it took to get me to go to therapy was a years-long uphill struggle. I didn't know which was worse, acknowledging that something was wrong with me, or finding out that nothing was, and therefore, why do I feel this way? Those steps formed a staircase so steep I never thought I would climb it, and even when I finally did, it took so long for me to ease open the doors, to finally let myself be sad, be vulnerable, be angry. In the allegory of Theseus' ship, parts are replaced until the ship is no longer what it once was, and the question remains if the ship is still the same one Theseus originally owned. As we grow older, parts of ourselves change incrementally until we sometimes look back and wonder if we are the same person at all. If not for our memories connecting the incidents of our lives, we might consider the people we were long gone. Sometimes my younger selves are so unrecognizable to me that I feel a numb disconnect, as if I got distracted and missed my own departure before awaking anew in the person I am now. This new, unpredictable, unfamiliar face with emotions and opinions and sensations so suddenly alien to me. Our bodies too replace their cells this way over time. Perhaps the fleetingness of everything, our liminal existence in the face of entropic doom is where we truly exist, where who we are surfaces. If only our ability to act and therefore our choices give our lives meaning, maybe what we've done doesn't matter, neither does what we will do, but our actions, our choices, in the moment. Now. Today. Because our memories, our fallible, gullible, and biased hot takes on events past, define how we see the world, they make up a large part of who we are and how we act in it. But our memories are more than just us. We are reflected in those around us, and we carry parts of them with us. We're all partly made up of one another, and together the moments we remember and the ways we each remember them make the world what it is from our perspective. The regrettable and the joyful, the terrible and the good. They are our stories, and what are our lives if not stories to be forged and written and remembered and told? Stories that exist in the boundary between waking and sleeping, between living and dying. I was hesitant to ever do something like this podcast for the same reason I've never been able to journal, despite the fact that writing down my thoughts and feelings greatly alleviates the pressure and helps me work through them. I've always told myself that it would be too late for me to start journaling, 
that I've missed so much of my life already that there would be no point in starting now. Because it wouldn't be total. It wouldn't be complete. It wouldn't be perfect. And with each passing day, that narrative only seemed to become more and more of a reality. I now know that's not true. I could of course start journaling tomorrow, and it would be no better or worse than if I had started when I was a child. Yet, the feeling remains. A basic principle of existential philosophy is that the universe is entirely indifferent to us. There is no one true purpose we exist for, no goal to achieve, and no prize to be won for living our lives a certain way. There are no tenets by which to live that can definitively instruct us on how to have a good life. There is no reason for being. There is only us. Nothing we do matters in the grand scheme of things, and so all that does matter is what we choose to do. While this gives us the freedom to create our own meaning through the choices we make, it also means that unless we choose, there is no meaning. Stagnation and indecision could essentially be seen as limiting the fullness of our lives. As somber and scary as that may seem, there is some comfort to be taken in the knowledge that within each of us is the power to live a meaningful life. That notion is one that actually terrifies me. The responsibility to live meaningfully entirely rests on me and me alone, and no one can tell me what that is supposed to look like or how to do it. My brain took that to mean I should be anxiously terrified into inaction until I die, but doing so only ever leads to regret. Avoiding that lunch, staying in instead of going to that party, saying no to something new because it might seem a little daunting. The freedom to choose is something that we always have, even in the direst of situations. It cannot be taken away by anyone else, nor can we ourselves avoid it. No matter how much it may feel that way, life is not something that happens to us. It is something we do. If life is purposeless, that does not mean it is not worth living. In fact, it impresses the importance of creating our own meaning. Both because of and in spite of the awareness of life's meaninglessness, we can take solace in the knowledge that the power to change our circumstances rests in our ability to choose and act, however we can, with whatever we have. And, in our death, write a story that won't be judged on how well-written or good it was, but by how we chose to act in it. We can't ever recapture the person we once were, no matter how hard we try to, nor can we recapture the boundless wonder of our youth. As our awareness of death and pain and despair and the uncaring nature of the world around us grows, but we can shape ourselves into something far more steadfast. Affirmed in this new knowledge and from what we have learnt, who we have been and have become, with a freshly forged sense of purpose. It is not the brutality of the world, but its detached carelessness that makes it so frightening. By accepting this indifference, we can come to terms with life's challenges in order to experience authentic fulfillment. We can provide our own warmth against the coldness of the universe. I think part of being human is this constant awareness of how contradictory we are. We endlessly seek answers to our purpose and desire meaning in our lives, but the world around us offers no clues, and that cognitive dissonance hurts. It opens those jaws again into the darkness. It reminds us how ultimately alone we are. The meaninglessness of life, paired with our ravenous need to find one, brings me back to my fear that I can't fill my time on this earth with enough. I can't do enough, live loudly or boldly enough, create some mark on this world to persist beyond my death. 
It's that fear that makes me question if it's worth living. Suicide presents a real problem when having an existential crisis, because without some belief in the divine or blind faith in something unprovable, however nebulous that might be, it's an inviting option. I can do something with my existence that's within my control. I don't have to wait for the entropy to eat away at me. I can get off the ride on my own terms. Is that not the ultimate choice? In the Sisyphean struggle that is each day, the boulder we carry can weigh down on us heavier some days than others. So why do we choose to pick it up again and climb that same hill? Perhaps a comforting thought is that we get to choose each day. Every day we pick up that boulder, we know our being amounts to no greater purpose than what we make of it. That's what being alive is. It's hard. It hurts. It's a struggle. But bowing out of the struggle doesn't solve it. It doesn't make it go away, because then there is no peace to experience. No knowledge to attain. The battle isn't won, just over. And we can no longer succeed in finding something to live for. I've come to think that accepting the fact that we are contradictory, that we don't make sense, is where we can find our own answer. To break free of the pain over what isn't, accept what is. Be content in the knowledge that there is no answer. Look for meaning where it doesn't exist. Because in time, maybe we'll develop one from that very search. My fear of death and the passage of time, and of my own insignificance, did nothing but hold me back. I would look at gravestones and try to read the faded names of the most neglected ones just so they were for a moment not totally forgotten to the world. That worldview shaped so much of my formative understanding of what it is to be alive. I was so avoidant to experiences because I felt so powerless within the ocean of life. The pointlessness froze me. The contradiction was too much to bear, and my subsequent inaction deprived me of experiences. The purpose I so desperately searched for withered and vanished. Without exercising my ability to choose, life became meaningless. So to empower myself, I had to accept that the ability to control my life rested on me alone. I had to accept that the depression will rise within me. The invitation to let go of that boulder will be there. The world will not care. But if I want to have done anything with my time here, I must keep going regardless. And the sting of that truth dwindled when I did. Because my boulder, the struggle to carry it, the endless search for some reason for existing, that is when my life happened. It is in those moments where we choose to press on knowing what we know, that we get to experience the unbridled joy and the terrible grief that the uncaring universe thrusts our way. And we start to paint an imperfect picture full of stories to be told. The decision to start taking medication is one that took a long time for me to come to terms with. It felt like a betrayal of myself. It felt like I was limiting my ability to choose for myself. I've never been under the impression that my brain requires chemical assistance for issues that stem from what I experienced as a child, and the fact that medicating has been an enormous help hasn't changed that. I did not want a crutch on which to neglect the duty I have to myself to improve my mental state, work on my shortcomings, and hopefully create meaning through my choices and subsequent responsibilities. But I was not in a good place to do so. Accepting the crutch just made that journey a little steadier, and the weight of my boulder 
got a little lighter. Knowledge of death and decay may seem like such a terrible end for the innocence of our youth, but the pain we experience is better than feeling nothing at all. The sudden drop of someone being there one moment and not the next is incomprehensible. We wish we could shield our children from it. We try to move on, but nothing makes sense anymore. We can feel a rage towards those who left us to fend for ourselves without them. But if we measure grief only by the sadness we feel, we are neglecting the love, because as a very wise synthesoid once said, what is grief, if not love, persevering? Loneliness is not in and of itself a bad thing. It just means that we feel alone. We usually feel alone because we are, but sometimes I can be surrounded by people and yet feel completely alone. It's the lack of a presence that hurts because it reminds us how insignificant we all are, and that only our made-up connections to one another truly mean anything. In those moments when I feel lonely, I've come to recognize how much of that feeling is because of what is real, and how much of the negativity comes from the reasons I've made up about why I'm lonely. I suppose I don't have anything profound to say about why that is. As I write these words, I am dealing with the sudden loss of my grandmother, and I don't know how to feel. But at least I am. I think that so much of my life is the narrative I construct, rather than the reality of what happened. I always wanted to be an actor, but not very much, and I didn't know why. I think it was part of my narrative. I was in school plays, I went to drama school, I was in the odd professional production, but being an actor was more a label I used to stave off the fear of not knowing what I truly wanted. When people asked me what I did, I would say, I'm an actor, until I wasn't anymore. When my day job became my real job. And suddenly I would say, I'm a chocolatier, I'm a travel agent. I latched onto the label of a job title as if it was my defining characteristic, or that it said something deep and profound about my wants and desires for the direction of my life. But the truth is, I wasn't really any of those things. Those were things I did. Things I did to disguise from the fact that I wasn't sure what, or who, I was. Too many times was my narrative confronted and I'd have to come up with something on the spot to shield myself from the harsh truth that I just didn't know. I would say, I'm an actor, but right now I'm working this job until... until I save up enough for more classes, until I find an agent, until I can buy a camera, until I can get good editing software for my showreel. The fear that prevents me from pursuing hobbies I'd once enjoyed or always wanted to, dance, martial arts, painting, gymnastics, digital art. I always had a reason, but what's worse is, I needed one. I worked my way through one soulless sales job after another. I became the very scourge of the earth, an estate agent in central London no less, believing making a decently average paycheck might be the thing that was missing from my life and identity. I wore these horrible job titles like an ill-fitting glove. I was more of a sheep in wolves' clothing, hiding amongst the financially driven, trying desperately to see if I could fit in and make this my new identity. But with each of these farcical attempts to play the role, the gnawing realization that 
I hadn't actually been acting for months would eventually take its hold and I would stop to consider what I was even doing. What was it that I wanted from life if I wasn't following my dream? Maybe it wasn't really even my dream to begin with. But there was no way for me to find that out if I wasn't committed to trying. You see, not once did I contact an agent. Not once did I pull the money together for new headshots, nor take the opportunities presented to get any done. Not once did I actively seek out auditions for professional productions. I wasn't sure if I was more afraid of what I might consider failing, or if I just didn't have the will to try in the first place. This empty, meaningless sense my life had grown became an unbearable hole inside me. I would sit alone with my thoughts and wonder why I didn't have the strength to do anything. I started to fear that maybe this was all I was. As each sunrise became each sunset, a panic would rise within me about what I'd done with my day, my week, my month, my year. I was still defining my creative output by the plays I'd been in as a teen, by the drawings I'd made as a child, by the dissertation I had written in uni, by the short film I had starred in at 18, and suddenly I was 25. I was no longer the creative I kept telling myself I was, but instead, this new thing I had become while I was waiting to start my life. I had perpetuated the same lie to myself and to everyone around me, to shield myself from reality, and I did it with the same fallacious logic, that I couldn't start my life until I had X. Only with X. The drawing software, the new laptop, the camera, the editing suite, the gym membership, the money to pay for pole dance classes, the time to write and draw. Then I'll be able to begin. Then I'll be able to thrive, to live, to be happy. But a lack of paint was not what was stopping me from painting. A gym membership was not stopping me from working out. This is commonly referred to as the toolbox fallacy and is a kind of false dilemma defined as justifying doing nothing because something necessary is missing. The imposter syndrome I imposed upon myself by convincing myself of this, and therefore claiming myself to be something I really wasn't, was nothing compared to the persistent hold this fallacy had on me. And that is in part, I think, due to the fact that there are circumstances in which it is actually true. I can't paint without paints, for example. But even when I was gifted paints, nothing changed. Each tool I acquired to achieve my aspirations remained in its box, staring at me from across the room. Because the lack of a tool is not what was actually wrong. Having a laptop doesn't make me a writer, but using it to write does. An actor acts, whether that's in a blockbuster movie or local community theatre. I could have filmed self-tapes on my phone. My mother has always been a pianist. But whenever there's no piano in sight, she's been known to strum out a tune in her head on any instrument available. She's worked out how to play a guitar before, because that's what was in front of her. I once caught her playing Lady Gaga's Bad Romance on a harp. I've seen her tap out a tune in her head onto a dining table after a few glasses of wine. Lacking her tool has never stopped her from playing. Music is something she carries with her. Within all of us, there is a fear of failing. When the play you wrote reads like a trite student production, when you look back on footage of yourself and can't bear to show it to anyone, when you realise you haven't been to the gym in three months, it's hard to feel like you're not good enough, not worthy of anyone's approval or validation or affection. But this wasn't always the case. 
As children, we put on plays that have no endings. We tell stories with no narrative. We draw superheroes that look like psychedelic nightmares. Because there is no way to fail. There is no concept that we might. That we might not be good enough for the world to view and accept. But somewhere along the way, we learn to judge ourselves by the standards of others. To censor our mistakes. To avoid the scrutiny of our peers. Being aware of these things doesn't make them go away. But it helps us accept them. Because acknowledging them makes it possible to live with them. It gives us the option to choose how we behave in response when the fallacy arises and the paints stare from the shelf. We can choose to pick them up and paint something. Anything. A few blobs on a canvas. Because a painter paints. And the more we pull ourselves away from the welcoming pit of despair, the less power it has. Its pull becomes weaker. Its darkness less inviting. But how do I manage my own fear of failing when the open jaws of a depressive episode replace the ground beneath my feet? Well, for one, I've come to realize that the only way to accept failure is to expect failure. It is inevitable. Allow it to be. I re-recorded the first episode of this podcast, rewrote and redrafted and re-edited and gave up more times than I care to admit. It took all the strength and will I had just to put one foot in front of the other and making this a reality, carried by the welcome push of professional equipment and support. And as I am continually reminded, it doesn't have to be perfect, because nothing in this life is. Perfection is another lie we tell ourselves that begs the question, why bother starting? If I'm not going to be instantly perfect, why even try? But there's an important truth to remind ourselves that perfection and failure are not our only options. And a life spent endlessly trying and failing is still better than one where we do nothing. I would rather have a scrawled mess of a drawing on a paper napkin than have nothing to demonstrate I was ever on planet Earth. If you're anything like me, current world news probably makes you want to curl up in a ball beneath a duvet of delightful depression and hibernate in protest. I sometimes wish I could dive to the bottom of the Mariana Trench just to enjoy the peace of the dark and the quiet, or else fling myself into the depths of space to escape the dreaded doom scroll. That endless doom seems to love making noise in my mind whenever it's time to sleep, and surprisingly, the bright light of my phone held inches from my eyeballs with all of its wonderful and terrible knowledge never seems to help me drift off. Reading pointless arguments and stupidity-laden rants on Reddit has become something of a comfort. The high drama of polarized news and dumb social media disputes fueled by bots get me so worked up, yet feel like some kind of ritual. Pair that with a hefty mug of anxiety in the morning and I'm ready for a terrifying day. Every time I wake up with an already racing heart or in a cold sweat, I seem to forget that anxiety dreams shouldn't be the norm. It's like scratching an itch, the urge to check my phone the moment I wake up, as if to fill a void. It's a bit like having your lunch in front of you and not being able to eat it until you found something good to watch. But social media and what it does to our mental health is as much a fallacy as anything else. Social media can be such a cruel and unforgiving place. It's easy to get sucked into comparing our reality with someone else's fantasy, but even knowing it's not real doesn't always help. Even if you're putting yourself out there and trying to make friends, not everyone will hit it off with you, and sometimes you won't even get a response. 
That's okay, and it's not your fault. You're still worthy of love, and if you keep trying, you'll find the right people for you. So much of my Twitter feed feels alien to me, and it makes me sad sometimes. Like, really sad. So much of it is things I just don't really get. Like people thirsting, or talking about cute boys, or how horny X is. It makes me feel like I should agree. Like I should have any idea what they're talking about. People whose thoughts and opinions or pictures I normally love to see suddenly slap something my way that I want to unsee so badly, but don't want to mute them. The last thing I want is for my feed to be a weirdly curated stream of porn only I would like, but even if I tried to make it so, I don't know that it would be possible. Most of the things I like to look at are so sparse amongst a variety of accounts that predominantly share either sweaty, muscly, penetrative, or oral sex, laments about relationships and one-night stands, and weirdos on Tinder or Grindr, or being hot and horny for acts of vanillaism, or else it's chastity, female biology, or stereotypically femme-presenting individuals exhibiting lewd content I commend them for, but not what I follow them for. It's hard to know if I'm the problem, if there is a problem. It's hard to know where I belong. If not here, then where? Maybe my issue stems from my own insecurities around owning my sexuality, feeling like my identity was chosen for me and I've had so little ability to exercise my autonomy over who I want to be, that I don't see people who resonate with me, that it sometimes seems like only I am able to turn myself on. But I think the truth is, those are just the insecurities that get triggered by the insane influx of fake perfect lives and numbered buttons of approval that hit like dopamine in likes and follows, the comparison of which creates a toxic internal narrative of inadequacy. What you see online is not real. I have suffered with depression and anxiety for most of my life. I have severe social anxiety, but you wouldn't know that from meeting me. Not one bit. The fear of my anxiety being visible to others is so strong that I have long employed a false confidence and humour. I want people to like me more than I want to like myself, and that's not healthy. But it is changing. In fact, since I wrote that sentence down, I don't know that I feel that way anymore. I wanted to be anyone but me for so long that now I actually have realised the person that I want to be is me. Hey guys, Barney here. 
I just want to take a quick moment to talk about the program that brings The Big Top to life, Zencaster. I use Zencaster for all my recordings, and since taking over The Big Top fully, I have actually tried other systems, but I ended up sticking with Zencaster. It's so easy to use. You don't have to download anything, just log in using your browser and start recording a high-quality podcast right away. It records studio-quality sound and up to 4K video with guests, along with a full suite of professional tools that let you produce and publish all from one dashboard. Being a creator has genuinely never been easier. And I love that I can send a simple link to my guests and we can record over a video call wherever they are in the world. Also, if you're like me and cannot stand the sound of your voice, Zencaster's built-in post-production process makes such a difference. It automatically removes ums and ahs, awkward pauses, reduces background noise, and makes me sound so much better. Plus, the hobbyist and Creator Plus accounts are always free to use, and their professional accounts are free to try for 14 days, no credit card required. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my code BIGTOP, and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience as I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story.